Hi, welcome to episode 541 of the Fantastic Forecast. I'm Dave Elliott, and who wants to join my pillow-fighting meetup group? In every episode of the Fantastic Forecast, I'll be talking about a different issue of the Fantastic Four, starting with issue 1 and going all the way to issue 645. And today, it's Fantastic Four 541 from November 2006. Many Annoying Things, None of Them French by J. Michael Straczynski and Mike McCone. So, it feels like forever since I've recorded an episode. First, I had a cold, and I couldn't record a podcast. And then, a hurricane came along and knocked out my power. It's like, everything bad happens to me! So Ben Grimm is leaving the United States forever, you're right, and a taxi is taking him to the airport. Considering Ben's history of demolishing New York City taxi cabs, this particular taxi cab driver is going to be the idol of his peers for helping get rid of the big orange cab demolisher. Now this taxi driver isn't paying very much attention to Ben, he's preoccupied with a conversation he's having on his cell phone. Wait a minute, this is a New York City cab driver. He's steering with one hand, he's got a cell phone in the other, how the hell is he going to honk his horn every five seconds? Ben finds a button, you know, like the kind of button on a piece of clothing, and he flicks it so hard, it hits the guy's cell phone, and destroys it. It demolishes it. Oh, come on, it's like a little plastic button. Like, maybe it's a little metal button, but still, I don't care how hard you flick it, It's not going to demolish a cell phone. That's just crazy. Is this something Ben can do? Has he been taking lessons from Bullseye? And why does being on the cell phone merit getting his phone destroyed by Ben? You know, if it were me, I'd rather the driver be talking on the cell phone instead of talking to me. Ben tells the driver his cell phone battery must have blown up. But then the driver says, At least I have a spare. A spare? Who carries around... Who carries around a spare cell phone? So they get to the airport, and Ben gets out at the terminal, and he's greeted by David Rose with Immigration and John Clark with the IRS. I have a feeling this is going to be bad news. They ask Ben if he's leaving the U.S., and he plans to give up his U.S. citizenship. Ben says he's just going going away for a while, and the immigration agent says that's problematic. Just because I speak out against government policy, I can't leave the country? Ben's asked. The guy says, Nonsense. Of course not. You'd just be put on a no-fly list. I guess it's time to take a cruise. They also ask him about the trust fund he recently found out about, and they ask if he's cashed in on that account. Ben says, Maybe. He says that since Ben hasn't paid any income tax on that, all his accounts are being frozen. I'm no IRS agent, but I'm pretty sure that's not the way it works. Shouldn't he have at least until April 15th, 2007, to pay his taxes? This leaves Ben with only $3,000 in traveler's checks. The IRS agent tells Ben to have a nice flight. So much for being on the no-fly list. How is he flying? I thought he was on the no-fly list. While going through security, the TSA agent tells Ben he can't take his toothpaste in his carry-on luggage. And Ben is like, my toothpaste? The agent looks at him and decides... Ah, what the hell. And he lets Ben keep his toothpaste. And then, to save money, Ben has to change his seat from first class to coach. 
oh, the horror for the people sitting next to him. If you thought sitting next to Kevin Smith on a plane was bad, try sitting next to the thing. I would not be a happy camper if that guy was sitting next to me. So Ben finally arrives in Paris, and he's walking around the city, checking it out. He says, it's not that bad. It ain't the Bronx, but it ain't bad. I assume he's being sarcastic, and he doesn't actually have an affinity for the Bronx. You know, it just occurred to me, in all these years of reading comics, comics about superheroes who live in New York City, I don't recall anything ever happening in the Bronx. The Bronx is like the only part of New York that hasn't been gentrified yet. If you're going to have a street-level superhero fighting crime in New York, it should be in the Bronx, not Manhattan. Certainly not Hell's Kitchen. Hell's Kitchen is full of yuppies. Ben stops this one guy and asks him if there's anything good to eat around there, and the guy replies, Monsieur, this is Paris. And Ben asks if there's any place that has good food. The French guy jogs off, saying, Perhaps Monsieur would find something to his liking at the Dog Kennel. Oh yeah. 540 episodes, and finally, finally, I get to break out my flawless French accent. Oh, this episode is going to be so much fun for me. For you, not so much. Ben passes a street vendor who has some advice. May I make some recommendation to you for a good place to eat? La Rosse et la Plume, it is not far from here. You will be transformed, monsieur. And he gives Ben a card for the restaurant. You know, this is not a good idea for Ben to take that card. First of all, the guy is wearing a beret. Never trust a dude in a beret. Not even a Boy Scout. Even if he's French. Don't, don't trust a French Boy Scout. Second of all, he's got a Hitler mustache. I can't imagine his choice of facial hair goes over well in France. After all, if I remember correctly, Hitler made France his bitch during World War II. But I think I saw a documentary once where Hitler was killed while watching a movie in France because the theater caught on fire and he couldn't get out. So I guess the French got the last laugh. So Ben is at that cafe later, eating a nice meal, when the floor opens up and the entire table is lowered into the ground. Ben is greeted by that street vendor, who pulls off his mask and reveals himself to be Adamantine, commander in absentia of Les, Heros de Paris. He's a superhero, young and attractive, with long flowing blonde hair and no Hitler mustache. He says their hit city is in danger and they need Ben's help. And he introduces Ben to the rest of his team. Comte de Nuet. Bonjour. Anais, exiled queen of a lost cat civilization. Rawr. La Lumerie Bleu. I'm on air to meet you. La Cowboy. A Parisian homage to the American cowboy. Howdy, mon ami. Detective Fantôme. La Vent. Deja Vu. Say, have we met before? Dr. Q and Chocolate Mousse. Okay, a couple of those are French Resistance members from the movie Top Secret, but let's move on. So they don't have much time, they have to save the city. But first, they do need to have lunch. During lunch, they start to tell Ben about the Emperor of the Underground World, who has assembled an army of rock monsters to tunnel under Paris and destroy it. Ben gets a tear in his eye. They ask Ben what's wrong. He says, it's like the old days, when you knew who the good guys were and who the bad guys were. And there wasn't this, this frickin' civil war! And he yells and he smashes the table. I think in France, smashing a table during lunch is the height of unsociable behavior. They don't know what the civil war he's talking about is, even though you would think a thing like that would make world news. Ben asks what they need him to do. The leader replies that 
when they meet the enemy, he's going to know what to do. And on the next page, we see that he does know what to do. Clobber. So, as Ben and the French team battle the underground rock monsters, they engage in a little friendly banter. For example, there's this one guy, Phantom, who's dead, and he gets up every night and he prowls the city for secrets and mysteries. At one point, he calls Ben a bourgeois capitalist, and Ben replies by calling him a socialist layabout. Phantom replies that he's dead. He has a right to lay about if he wants to, and frankly, he has a point. Those damn dead people, what do they do all day? They just lay there, and they pay no taxes? They're useless. Useless, I say. So finally, they reach the big machine that's creating a large tunnel under Paris, and the guy on the team who runs, who runs fast grabs Ben and carries him toward the machine. Once he gets to the machine, the emperor of the underground realm is standing there, some mole man wannabe, and he has the same complaint as the Mole Man. He complains about the people who dwell in the daylight being mean to him. And they will never be mean to him ever again. Wah, wah, wah. He says, he says, Paris deserves to fall. She deserves to be destroyed. She brings nothing but pain and disappointment. She mocks you and ignores you. Ben asks, Somebody turned you down for a date, didn't she? And he's like, I, maybe. And the entire French team are like, Ah, he's been wounded in love. It's so understandable. He's been wounded in love. Now, at this point, Ben still has to destroy the big drilling machine. And this causes a cave-in. And the French team run for their lives. And Ben grabs the so-called emperor. And they end up emerging out of the middle of a street in Paris. Coincidentally, right near Louise, the woman, the so-called emperor... Real name is Renee. He's, it's the woman that he's in love with. She's surprised that he tried to destroy Paris, just like he said he would do in one of, her, one of his letters to her. And she gives him a hug and says she loves him. She's really impressed. For some reason, there's no editor's note reminding us not to try this at home. So let me say this. If you're trying to impress a girl, do not tunnel under a city to destroy it. This is only fiction. It won't work in real life. If you want to impress somebody with your tunnel drilling skills, perhaps uh, there might be another way to do that. So Louise agrees to marry Renee, and the French heroes say it's time for dinner. But we just ate, Ben adds. And Joe Quesada is like, what the hell does this have to do with Civil War? How is this even a Civil War crossover? And he's like, you're fired! And J.U. Michael Straczynski is like, I quit! And anyway, this issue ends with Ben saying, that this looks like the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Yeah, right. As far as I know, I don't think we'll ever see these people ever again. And we won't be seeing J. Michael Straczynski again, but he does quit this issue, most likely over his frustrations with Civil War. Poor guy. I'm not a big J. Mike fan, but he, he really did get screwed by Marvel on this one, and by Civil War in particular. He was also the writer on Spider-Man at the time, and if you think he got screwed on the Fantastic Four, he got royally screwed over on Spider-Man. Like... Doubly penetrated by Quesada and Millar. And so his run comes to an end. And frankly, I'm having a hard time remembering most of it. There was this stuff with the alien that came to Earth. On the run from, on the run from his own people for trying to spread knowledge. Which was an underwhelming story. There was the subplot about child welfare being concerned with Franklin and Valeria's safety and their living situation. Which for me was the highlight of the run. There was the Hulk vs. Thing storyline. Also, underwhelming storyline. 
I don't think it added much to the Hulk verse thing mythos. And there was the stuff with Thor's hammer, which really had nothing to do with the Fantastic Four. I think it was mostly to set up J. Mike's un- upcoming, at the time, run on Thor, which lasted for two years before hitting the same roadblock, another crossover forced on J. Mike. I can understand how comics must be really frustrating for a television writer, because when you're writing a television show, you're really only focused on that one show. Like, if you're writing episodes of Murder, She Wrote, no one is coming to you and saying, hey, you need to do an episode that incorporates, oh, I don't know, Thomas Magnum from Magnum P.I. We're doing a crossover. That would never happen. Okay, that actually did happen, but you know what I mean. In general, a TV writer isn't having crossovers with other television shows forced down his throat every six months. Can you imagine how horrible TV would be if they were run as shabbily as the comic book industry is? What if you were watching an episode of Game of Thrones and they ended an episode with To Be Continued Next Week on Silicon Valley? I would be pissed. Okay, I wouldn't be pissed because I watch both shows and that would be a crazy-ass crossover. But what if your favorite CBS show had a crossover with Two Broke Girls and you were forced to watch Two Broke Girls? You'd probably throw your TV out the window. And what if you were a writer for another CBS show and you were forced to use the Two Broke Girls on your show? You'd probably quit. Oh, it's common books are crazy. So anyway, so that's the end of the rather unremarkable, unmemorable J. Michael Straczynski run. This issue, this issue, by the way, is probably my favorite one of the run. It's fun, amusing, enjoyable, everything that Civil War is not. How is this even a Civil War crossover? It barely is. There's that one scene where Ben bangs on the table and complains about Civil War, but the rest of the issue is a very welcome break from the Civil War festivities. But we'll be back next time with the start of the Dwayne McDuffie run and the final two issues of Civil War. If you have any questions about the Fantastic Four, about this podcast, or if you need relationship advice, you can email me at podcastff at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter, Dave Elliott, podcastff. And you can download other episodes of iTunes and find them all at www.podcastff.podbean.com. So long, kids. This podcast is over. She says she's no good with words, but I am worse. But it started out a joke of romantic stuff to my tongue. Way down with words, too. Over dramatic. Tonight is a cat, can't much worse. There's no one should ever.